three things. Don't get uh, scared for two of them. We'll go over that and make it simpler. It's just for you to look at, however. And you know what? I just now realized, actually standing here, that I did not print off the slides. So if anybody wants the slides, then uh, I'll certainly be happy to, to do that. Well, we've been looking at the doctrine of Scripture, uh, doing a flyby. This is a huge topic. We've been looking at it in uh, parts. We've been looking at it in a survey fashion. We've looked under three categories, revelation, inspiration, canonization, and again, I'm just now realizing that I didn't write transmission under that subtitle uh, to pay a little more attention here. Uh, and transmission, which is what we're going to look at today. We have in the past covered translation. I'm going to skip over that this time uh, because we did that not too long ago. And next week we will do a, just a brief overview of how to understand the scriptures, of how we approach it in terms of um, how we understand what God means by what he says. That's under the category of hermeneutics. Everybody know what hermeneutics is? Anybody not know what hermeneutics is? I think everybody does. That's fine. We'll, we'll explain it uh, next week anyway. So we've looked at recently at inspiration and canonization. When we talk about inspiration, what are we talking about? Authors or the document? Authors or document? Are we convinced? Yes, when we talk about inspiration, we're saying the document, the text of Scripture is what is inspired. Yes, God used human instruments and they were a part of that inspiration process. It is a divine book, originally with one author, or ultimately uh, with one author, the Holy Spirit, but yet breathed out through men so that they wrote exactly the words that God wanted recorded for His people. So we're referring specifically to the documents of Scripture, that the documents are inspired documents. They are given by God uh, to us. Uh, in canonization... Uh, can anybody tell me what was one of the chief things in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that uh, was a criteria in recognizing a document as being from the Lord and to be kept for the posterity of His people? Does anybody remember? And we, we looked at several, but does anybody remember there was one major one? And it's just carried over from both the Old Testament and to the New Testament. One is that it was written by a recognized prophet. In the New Testament, that it was written by an apostle or someone in close association with the apostle, that it had the uh, direct approval of apostolic authority and leadership. In the Old Testament, that was, a key, uh, that was a key criteria, too, that it was written by a prophet of God. There were others that it agreed with the rest of inspired uh, inspira uh, documents and so forth. You can look at your notes for all those details. All right, so we'll have an exam uh, in November, <laughs> the third week, so we'll go ahead and study for those things. Uh, well, in either case, um, we will review some of those things. At least we've moved forward in, uh, I think, in gaining some clarity uh, on these issues in the doctrine of Scripture. So we looked last week at the, what should be uh, the canon, how we know what should be in the Bible. Was everything recognized immediately when it was given by God, by the church? That's somewhat of a trick question. Was it recognized immediately by the people of God? Yeah, the answer to that really is yes and no. 
Yes, it was recognized as inspired documents, and particularly the early church. We see the letters of Paul and others that were passed around. Uh, but there was also a process of ratification because of various reasons, the persecution of the church, uh, questions about authorship of some documents, so for example, like Hebrews, or the fact that some documents weren't known to the whole church at the same time, right? They weren't all just gathered in one place, they were spread about. And so there was a process of recognition. However, it was recognized by the people of God, Scripture, and K. Janus, and when was it the first official list, full, complete list? There were others, the Marcion in the second century and others, but when was the first? Does anybody remember? Um, yeah, it was, it was really, it was after Constantine. Remember that it was now that we had, we're moving into the area of councils, and it was in that process that it was then able to be ratified, and, there were, and the reason that these councils were held were not to figure out what books should belong in there, but to give an authoritative list for the church because of the many false books that were out there that were already rejected and, or questionable uh, by the church, the people of God. Um, so, uh, that was in around 320, 325, right in there, that that list was put together. Edict of Milan, does anybody remember that? That's a very significant date in the history of the church, an event. Does, does anybody remember what that is? 313, Edict of Milan. Okay, that was when Constantine declared peace uh, with the Christians. And he somewhat declared that Christianity was the religion, going to be the primary religion of the Roman Empire. And that was a significant change in the history of the church. That was when many other of the things that we're feeling the influence that were carried over into the Middle Ages and that we feel the influences of here uh, really begin to develop there in some significant ways. But uh, that's not what we're looking at this morning. Uh, okay, so Janice, you had a question. Mm hmm. Great question. Yeah, that's a good question. Well, and that gets into some of the other areas that we looked at as far as how a document was recognized as being inspired. One of the first, with so, for example, in the lesson. Uh, to Philemon would have been the fact that it was written by the Apostle Paul. So that would have garnered attention by the church immediately. Not everything the Apostle Paul... Right. Right, so I'm going to give a whole list here. But one, I'm just saying what would have given that... Like what set that apart from any letter written to an individual was this was written by the Apostle Paul. Right? So that, that's one. Not everything the Apostle Paul wrote was inspired. We looked at that because it wasn't the author that was the main part of inspiration. It was... Uh, the document, when we're, when we're looking at that as a doctrine. Uh, secondly, because it would have come then with the power of God, and it would have been, had a testimony uh, because of the authorship and the influence that it had in the early church as being recognized as worthy of being kept and as authoritative. One of the tests was that it came with spiritual power to God's people. Um, and so the letter of Philemon or two Philemon would have had that aspect and they would have recognized early on that this, this 
coincides with uh, the rest of the doctrine of the Apostle Paul and the other documents that were circulating at the time. It came from an apostle. It came with a certain power of God where it was recognized as being authoritative by the church. And it was kept. And it was one of those letters that was recognized. Uh, if I remember that part correctly, uh, I don't think there was much dispute on that one. So it, that would have just been the process. They would have recognized it. It's like so when Paul wrote Ephesians, that was possibly a circular letter. It's argued maybe that it was passed around to other churches and that the, because of the way the beginning is written that they were just to fill in the name of a city like uh, um, from some of the other places that it was supposed to go. But Paul says, you know, in, at the end of Colossians, have this letter read also among the other churches. So there were just some letters that were recognized because of the spiritual power, because of the authorship, because of the uh, authoritative doctrines laid down in it. So with Philemon, they would have recognized that was a situation that was speaking directly to the gospel and to slavery. It was dealing with an issue, but it, but it was dealing with it in terms of uh, eternal truths. Here, Philemon, uh, or if let Philemon, let, uh, I just blanked out. Who was the slave? Who was the slave? Does anybody remember before I? Who is it? George? Sorry, I just blinked out. Of yes, Onesimus. Thank you, Onesimus. Right. Sorry, I blinked out on that. Uh, so they would have recognized then that here's saying, you know, even though you owe me your very own life, Philemon, because uh, of what he, the gospel that he had brought to him, because of the fact that uh, Paul was instrumental in his own salvation, uh, Philemon's own salvation and there you had Onesimus who was a slave who had ran away that Paul is saying that look I'm he could come back but treat him now as a brother he's, he's a dealing with a very uh, crucial issue uh, of that time but in ways that are uh, with uh, timeless uh, truths that would be uh, instructive to the church um, throughout uh, the ages and it's a tremendous demonstration of gospel love of gospel love here is this person who is now a new creature. He's no longer a slave only by Roman law, but he's a slave of Christ, more importantly. Here he's coming back to this master who has a different relationship with him and treats him now as a brother uh, in Christ. And those would have been important themes and are important themes to us. That's really a forgotten letter. It's quite beautiful and its spiritual impact to us. Because of its smallness and because there's no major doctrine that comes out of it, it often gets uh, forgotten. But it does have that spiritual power and those timeless truths that God has wanted recorded for his church. And that was recognized by the people at that time. Is that helpful at all? Yeah. Um, any other questions, thoughts? I'll do my best to, to answer those about the, what we've looked at so far. Okay. Well, then we'll continue to go. Um, go through this here. Now, we've already mentioned that when we speak, speak of inspiration, uh, we're speaking primarily of the document. So it's not technically correct then to say that we have an inspired document in our hands. What we have is a translation of an inspired document that's been kept and preserved down through the ages. So we would say then it has inspiration that is a derived inspiration. In other words, it's inspired and it has the authority of inspiration because what is represented there are the documents that were originally given to the church. Uh, so when we speak of inspiration, we're speaking of the original autographs. What do we mean by autographs? 
Okay, just the original document. That's what it means. The thing that was actually written by their own hand, uh, the hand of the author. So those were, were, were inspired documents. They were free from error, and they were given to the church. They were transmitted. We'll look at this. And I'm going to have to go really, really fast because I do want to cover this, but um, nonetheless, uh, we can look at these things later <clears throat> or cover them again in deeper detail if you want. Uh, but the point is, is that... Uh, they were copied. They were copied. And what we have in our hands are translations of copies. They were not written in English. Uh, they were written in Hebrew, some Aramaic in the Old Testament, and in uh, Greek in the New Testament. Okay, so now again, this is a uh, much... And so that gets us into the issue then of transmission of scriptures, which is what we're going to look at uh, today. Uh, this is, of course, much richer and broader than we can cover in about, uh, let's see, 40 minutes... So this lesson amounts to little more than a general introduction of some of the big ideas. Um, certainly not in any detail. But hopefully enough that will increase your confidence in Scripture and your understanding in how we have the, the copies of Scripture that we have uh, before us. And I hope to understand uh, why you have some of the notes that you have in your Bible, like not found in the best manuscripts, found in the earliest manuscripts, or so on and so forth, those little things. This, this hopefully will at least uh, open the window a little bit to understand uh, why those things are there and what their importance is, and why we can have sure confidence that what we have in our hand is an accurate representation uh, that we can have full confidence in of what God has given to us as a church. But now before we get to it, let me just very briefly remind us that we cannot think of the, um, the reality of God preserving his word apart from uh, the reality of God's providence, his sovereign care over his creation and over his word. That is certainly uh, a part of it. I have been looking forward to all week, the second part that we'll hear from Parker on the word of God from Psalm 19. I've been very eager to hear, just knowing the encouragement that is to the soul of all that God has designed in His Word uh, for us and for His uh, people. And so God has given us His Word to, for our salvation, for our encouragement, for our sanctification, and He has certainly preserved it by His sovereign hand. And so we would not think that God would give us some original documents and then just leave that open to the care of humans without His intervention to keep it and to preserve it. So we, we have to recognize God's sovereignty uh, in this too. Uh, as far as how it's put on the slide, there are preconditions to understanding transmission, God's sovereign over all creation. And again, I can print these out. You don't have to write them, uh, write all these things down. Uh, God directs his creation for a purpose. He actively upholds and directs nature. He causes the sun to rise and fall, right? We saw that with general creation uh, Parker mentioned it this morning, uh, last week from Psalm 19. Uh, he, he is complete in complete control over his creation and he directs it. He directs the events of nations. Uh, God directs the events of individuals. In other words, God is sovereign in the life of his people and in his world. He is involved. He is not a distant God, the God of deism. He is a God of um, the Bible, who is intimately involved with the details of creation by his sovereign hand. God sovereignly often works through secondary causes. Now, in the doctrine of God, we looked at this. This is uh, the doctrine of concurrence. The doctrine of concurrence. Uh, and that simply says this, that God sovereignly fulfills his will and he works actively through secondary causes. So, for example, 
when we study a flower and how it might grow from a seed and then uh, blossom into a flower and then how it might let seeds off to pollinate other flowers, uh, those are all things that can be looked at scientifically. And yet, God causes the grass to grow. Right? So it's God's sustaining power. So God is doing that. He is sustaining that. He is sustaining these, what we would call laws, which are just merely consistent ways of God's working in his universe. He is sustaining that, uh, those functions to, to work exactly as God planned. But those are secondary causes, right? Those are secondary. You can't do a scientific experiment and see the energy of God, the power of God doing that. But yet he is. But he's doing it through these other causes that he's put into place. That's, that's the basic idea of concurrence. Um, so anyway, you could look at some of those scriptures uh, there that, that explain that. Uh, one example would be uh, Acts 4. So, you delivered up by your wicked intentions, right? By the predetermined plan of God. So God's plan, his sovereign purpose was that Christ would be crucified. And that he would be crucified by the rejection of his people. He would be crucified under the Roman system. And he would be put to death. But who did all that? God or men? Well, the answer is yes. That's concurrence. Uh, When we speak of inspiration, who wrote the scriptures? Is God or men? Yes. Right? In scripture, when we looked at that, I gave you that handout that shows, uh, addresses that. Sometimes on the same passage, it will say, Scripture said, Moses said, or God said. Right? Yes, those are, all, those are all true. So God is sovereignly working and he works through secondary causes. So God providentially preserved his written word through the process of textual transmission. So the secondary cause in terms of transmission would be what we're going to look at uh, today. Uh, the whole process through the scribes and how it was uh, uh, handed down to us. Okay, so you know, I'm going to go through, I'm going to try to get through these relatively quickly but uh, stop me at any time. Okay, let's make sure I'm reading that clock right. Actually, it's uh, further along than I thought. So let's go. All right, so let's just look at this in terms of the Old Testament. Textual transmission was a concern from the beginning of God giving his written word. When did God give his written word? Where is it? At what point in the history of Israel did God give his written word? Well, it would be the law, right? Which included the Ten Commandments. Moses, the people of God, Jacob did not have the written word of God. Abraham did not have the written word of God. Isaac did not have the written word of God. The nation of Israel in Egypt did not have the written word of God. That changed with Moses. That was the significance of Moses. Uh, God was with his mouth. God gave his words to his people. He spoke to him face to face as with a friend, right? The change that we saw moving into Joshua was now the command was meditate on it day and night, right? Don't depart from the right or the left. What? The written word. God had a different way he communicated uh, primarily to his people after that and it was through the word of God, the written word of God. So that, that was significant. So we see then some indications of how this was to take place among God's people early on. Now the first mention of it is Deuteronomy 31.9. That's the first thing that's up there on the screen. Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. 
Now, the immediate context is most likely the book of Deuteronomy. However, when compared with other passages, and again, I'm going to go fast, so I'll just mention them to you, such as, you could write these down if you wanted, Exodus 17, 14, Exodus 24, 4, Exodus, excuse me, 34, 27. Uh, it's clear that really what is being referred to is everything. Moses was the last book. It was the culmination, as it were. It was the final, uh, the final book in the, the five books of the Law of Moses, and the reference there is then to what is to be written down is and kept for the posterity of God's people is uh, all of the law of God. It says in Deuteronomy 17, 18, he says this, looking forward to the time of kings. This is, there's really a prophetic uh, element to this passage. They didn't have a kings then, right? The monarchy did not start until after judges. And who was, did the monarchy? When did we enter into that period? Anybody remember? Bible history? No. Who was right before David? Saul, right? They asked for a king. It was Saul. Then it was David. And then it was David and Solomon. And that was the end of the united monarchy. And then uh, we get into the divided monarchy of the northern and the southern tribes. But anyway, so, so Moses is here looking forward to this time of the kings. And he says in Deuteronomy 17, Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. It shall be with him. He shall read it all the days of his life. What are they to do with the law? Right. Read it and meditate and, in terms of transmission, copy Copy it. All of those are right, exactly. But in terms of transmission, they were to copy, they were to keep that, this law. That one document that was, uh, Moses, Moses originally wrote was not going to last forever. Uh, they needed to keep fresh copies of it. And there's probably an element there too where they were to do that because in the copying process it was also putting the word into their, their lives, into their mind. It was re-emphasizing it. Uh, God preserved his word even through times of disobedience, okay? So now in 2 Kings, we have passed through the united monarchy of Saul, uh, David, and Solomon. Granted, there was a little bit there under David where they came together later, but under David, Solomon, the divided monarchy, northern tribes, southern tribes, northern tribes, all bad, southern tribes, uh, a lot of bad, but some good. Uh, but nonetheless, in 2 Kings, we have... An interesting uh, account of in the life of Josiah, his reign. And so at this point, Israel, uh, Judah had had some uh, bad kings. Okay, some bad kings. Uh, Josiah, was he a good or a bad king? You remember? A good or a bad king? Good king. He was a good king. Yes, he was. He was a good king. So Josiah is a good king. So now he comes in uh, to Israel and his heart really is right toward God. It's, he's directed toward the Lord. But they have a problem. They've had a lot of disobedient years and a lot of disobedient kings. And so what happened is the word of God was forgotten. The word of God was forgotten. And so in 2 Kings chapter 22, we have this amazing testimony here. And I'll just read verse 8 for you. You know, you read the whole account. And you're familiar with it. But here in verse 8, it says, Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan, Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan who read it. And later we learn that Josiah heard the words of the law. And what did he do? Do y'all remember? What? He tore his garments. Right. He was repentant. Because he realized 
this is the word of the Lord, we've been disobedient to it, and we need to repent, and we need to turn back to the Lord. But now the point here is this, the book was preserved. So through all of that times of idolatry, all the times of disobedience of the kings, uh, the word was preserved. God did preserve uh, his word. It had been, for all intents and purposes, uh, hidden from the people of God, but here it was again in their possession. God is keeping his word. That's the point of that. God is keeping his word. Now, um, how does he do that? Well, again, this is ever so brief, but I'm going to just mention a few, few key, key elements to this. The process of standardizing the, the copying of God's word and handing that down was probably not put into place until the time of Ezra. What is significant about the time of Ezra? Okay, you tell me. Well, that, yes, that was during the time where they rebuilt the wall, so they're back in the land now. Artaxerxes gave the decree, they're back in the land. Nehemiah is a part of that, and others. So what is significant? Now, where were they coming back from? Babylon, so Judah was in Babylon. At that point now, it was the Persia media empire in the Persia uh, but Babylon originally, and then the northern tribes, remember, had been taken earlier to Assyria. Why were these tribes sent off into captivity? Okay, disobedience, idolatry, scorning the word. Well, this is a change. This is a massive change in the history of the nation of Israel. And actually, this is the change that uh, we won't get into, but it brings us, it's what developed here, that brings us into the New Testament and what we see going on with the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. All of those developments in that time. But the point here I would want to note is that this really probably began with Ezra. And what's important to know about the time is that the people had been sit in, sent into captivity because of their disobedience to the word. Wow, when they got back, remember Ezra 7, he was, he was sent back. They read the law. They, they had to deal with some sin issues early on. But they were like, man, we are listening to the law of God because we're not going to go through that again. Right? This is, we, we, better, we better do exactly what God said. Uh, and so there was this renewed interest into the word of God when these people were back in the land. And what's significant is they had it. They had it. And so it's really with Ezra the scribe that we see this process of systematizing uh, the copying of God's word and the transmitting of God's word uh, for his people. Okay, so there's some of those notes. The people returned to the land was attended with the reading of scriptures. Leaders were careful to realize the severity of judgment was attached to ignorance and disobedience to God's word. And scripture became overall more of a part of the religious life of Israel, a significant part of the religious life of Israel. Now, this first group known as the suffering, probably in uh, exercise around 400 BC, right? That's when they were back in the land, uh, to 200 AD. Their great achievement noted by one... Actually, both of these quotes are by the same uh, Old Testament scholar, Gleason Archer. He said, their great achievement was to standardize a pure text of the Hebrew scriptures. At some, he says later, at some unknown period, perhaps in the first century B.C., they hit upon the device of counting all the verses, words, and letters of each book. We're going to look at this in just a bit. In the Old Testament, and appending these figures to the end of the book concerned, this would enable any checker to tell whether he had a perfect copy before him. They counted in the books... Every letter that was in that book, okay, they, they knew it. They counted every word. They knew every letter. They knew what word was exactly in the middle of each book. So they could go back, count back, go to the middle, and this is the word that should be there. And if these things and many, many others, um, I've only, again, only mentioned just a few, 
even in the handout. But uh, these things were to ensure that they kept an accurate copy of the scriptures. And if something was wrong, do you know what they did? They didn't get out an old Hebrew eraser, you know, like that. They, was, they threw it away, and they did another one. They did another one. It was painstaking. I don't think anybody in this room would hire sign-on to be... A, I mean, it was painstaking and meticulous, but it was a representation of their high reverence for uh, the written word of God. Uh, so let's, let's look at this. Now, there... There were other groups, I'm not mentioning, there were a few other groups in between there after, that really even started around from the first century uh, AD and um, even a little bit before that, a couple of other groups. But the next significant group that I'd mention is the Masorites, and they were uh, in play around 500 to 1000 AD, and they're the ones responsible for the text that we have today. Now here I'm talking about the, uh, the Hebrew text, okay, for the Old Testament, not the New Testament text. We'll mention that in just uh, a minute. Uh, so the Masoretic text, have you, has anybody ever heard that term before, the Masoretic text? Uh, sometimes you'll see the little MT written, that's what it stands for, the Masoretic text. And they're referring to this group, the text that we have from these people, uh, this group of people that God uh, raised up. Uh, now let me just make a few minutes, and I'm gonna, I mean a few points here, and then I'm going to give you an example, and we'll, we'll look at this a little more closely. Uh, what did they do? So, the, so when the Jews handed down the text, materials to write on were hard to come by. All right? They didn't run down to Staples and just get a new you know, order box of paper and get some new pens and start writing on it. Materials were hard. They needed to conserve it. They were passed around, some of these materials. Some, some actually would privately have parts uh, of scriptures copied at, at other times, periods. But uh, the point I'm making is that so in order to conserve space... Uh, they wrote these things, they wrote them without spaces together. Uh, they wrote, like if you look at a Hebrew Bible now, there's going to be spaces in the words, but it was just all together. No spaces, no punctuation, no anything. It was just like, and on top of that, there were no vowels. Uh, they were only consonants. So one of the things that the Masorites did uh, coming in is they, as you can look there, they made a, they added a, to the consonantal text. They added vowels. And pronunciation markings. They added other textual critical information uh, that were meant to preserve the true readings of a text, of the text. They made textual notes. Again, we'll look at some of this. The Masara. Uh, they made a colophon, which was an end piece. There are checks at the end of the book. Again, we're going to look at this in your handout. I'm just going to mention them now. Accents marking divisions of the text and uh, reading programs, the Ketev and Kier. Now, let me just make a note here about these Masorites and their work. Now, before the year 1947, what was significant in terms of textual criticism in 1947? Does anybody remember? The Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, what's interesting is before we had the Dead Sea Scrolls, the earliest extent, so, uh, you know, physical copy of the Old Testament that we had was actually around uh, 980 A.D. That was the earliest. We didn't have anything before that. There were no known text before that. So the standard, of course, response to that, particularly by liberal scholars and etc., I mean, seriously, right? I mean, 1000 AD, we're going back, you know, a long time here. Do you really think that they have these words? That's ridiculous. That's pie in the sky. That You can talk about provenance all you want, but that's, you know, we don't buy it. Um, okay. 
So in 1947, one of the significant things about this, uh, these discoveries of the Dead Sea Scrolls is uh, there was such a witness to the Old Testament text. And so the, one of the oldest texts was from the megalith, the text of Isaiah. And there's debate, you know, there's a whole discussion about the Dead Sea Scrolls, what, what those were. In other words, were those copies meant to be thrown away because they were imperfect? Were those the ones that recognized their value and kept? There, there's those kind of discussions. But beyond all of that, one thing that is really important is to note that one of the most complete scrolls that was found, discovered, was the text of Isaiah. The text of Isaiah uh, was from the 2nd century B.C., it was from around the 2nd century B.C., so it pushes it about 1,000 years back. Textual witness now, about 1,000 years back, which is highly significant for a variety of reasons. But what I would just mention to you uh, here is this. Um, and in Isaiah was essentially the same Masoretic text that was, they had from 980, uh, and, and so with other documents too. But I'm focusing on Isaiah particularly because of the significance of it, uh, of its prophetic material to the person of Christ. Isaiah 53, for example, was examined with these earlier or later manuscripts that we had around 980 AD, and it was basically exact agreement. When we say basically, there's normal issues of spelling or how words were pronounced, those kind of things, which were the normal purview of textual criticism. But essentially, it was exactly the same text that we had had from 980 AD. Uh, as a matter of fact, this is what one uh, uh, what has been noted from that document. Of the Hebrew words in the chapter, there are variations on only 17 Hebrew letters. And of these 17, 10 are a matter of spelling, 4 are stylistic changes, and the other 3 have to do with the single word translated as light. So when we talk about differences, and sometimes some, uh, if somebody brings about all these differences in textuals, that's the kind of thing that's being talked about. We're not talking about significant issues of what it's teaching or saying. We're talking about normal textual critical issues of any document that have to do with spelling, pronunciation, sometimes word choices that came in as the language developed over time. We're talking about those kind of things. Um, certainly, uh, those things that are all uh, able to be dealt with, through, again, through textual criticism. Uh, the point is, is that the text of Scripture was preserved by God. Again, we looked at before when we were recently in Matthew 21 in the morning service about the Lord's own, how he attested to the accuracy. Remember in Matthew chapter 22, uh, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? He's making a point on the present tense. We looked at Galatians. Paul made a point uh, going back all the way to the law about he said seed, not seeds. And so it was a singular and a plural, and we see examples of that. Throughout. The point is, is that um, that gives uh, just more testimony to the Lord's own words that not one jot or tittle will pass away until everything is fulfilled. And we would add, and everything has been preserved and we could know what those jot and tittles are. Now, uh, the Masorah. Look at your handout. Go ahead and look at your handout. Uh, let me, I didn't bring one. Are there any extra ones? I'm, I can run to myself. I'm so sorry. I didn't. Should have grabbed one myself. Can I? Can I just borrow these for a sec? I'm so sorry, George. All right. So let me just show you this briefly. Now, obviously, that's a bunch of chicken scratch. That doesn't mean that's not the point. Is to try to go through a Hebrew lesson here. What I want to do is just point out so you can get a visual aspect of what this may have looked like for them and, and the importance of this and how detailed they were. 
So now on this first handout where there's two pages stapled together, what you see here are the notes. So you see over in the left-hand side the MP, that's the Masora Parva notes, primarily dealing with issues of frequency and occurrence. So if you look on this back side, we won't for time's sake go through that. It will tell you what those little, those are actually Hebrew letters. Um, it'll tell you what they mean. To give you a flavor, an example of uh, how detailed they were. If you go down to the bottom, the Masora Magna notes, those are notes that there's a separate document that is a Masora Magna that has uh, notes relating to all of those verses there and to those markings. And then you see a textual crip, uh, critical apparatus. Uh, this is a part, this is a contemporary Hebrew Bible that gives you manuscript information, which manuscripts it came from, what was in one manuscript, not in another manuscript. My point is, this is the, the only thing I really want you to get from this is the detail and the specificity of the text of Scripture that um, we have and that they are working with. And the detail, the painstaking detail to make sure that it was with the absolute accuracy that these copies were handed and passed uh, down to us. Now, it'd be fun to spend more time on that, but I don't have time for that. But we don't have time, so we're not going to do that. But look at another one. Uh, well, actually, we'll, we'll do that in just a sec. Let me move on. So they also have, and then they had the Masora Finalis. Did I hand, give you that handout? Uh, you know what? I actually didn't. But anyway, that was notes at the end of each book that we already mentioned that has, uh, tells you how many letters, how many words, what the midpoint of the book was, etc. of each of those books. And one even at the end of the law for all of the law of Moses. What the, of all the books of the law of Moses, think about how the detail of this. What is the word that's exactly in the middle? They'll tell you, and then they would check it, and if it wasn't, then they started over, and many, many, many other details, and there were, you know, well over, I, f I forget the number off the top of my head, but well over 100,000, I, I think it may have been like 400,000 letters in the, uh, in the Pentateuch, and so they counted all of them, not a job I want, but nonetheless, that's, we're thankful that uh, they did that. Uh, Okay, they would have, in some of those notes that you'll notice in the side, the Ketev Kier, what is written and what is read. That's when, so if the scribes were going through and they thought they noticed a mistake, they would say in the art, there, there would be what is written, so they would not mess with the consonantal text. They would not touch that. That was sacred. But they would sometimes realize, but I think this was an error. And so they would make notes over on the side and say, this is what should be read. This was a note. But they would do that without touching the consonantal text. So it's not like they were changing it and passing it down. They were keeping it, but they would make notes on the side. So that's an early form of a, some of the textual criticism that went on. And they showed great, great reverence for the text and precision. Okay, let's, let's do this. Let's move on to the, to the New Testament. Um, now, in relation to the New Testament, I'm going to only emphasize two main points. Two main points, just for us to put into our, into our minds. If y'all want to do this more, I mean, we can down the road spend more time and not go so quickly <clears throat> and give lots of examples and such. And I could also point it out some of those books that are helpful. Somebody actually took one last week, and uh, hopefully that I think it will be helpful. It says it all in layman's language, but in a very, very helpful and comprehensive way. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the first is the time factor. The first is the time factor. We have approximately 5,700 manuscripts dating, get this, to the 2nd century A.D., you know, let that sink in. 
about 5,700 witnesses to the text. Now, they're not all complete. Some of them are only fragments. They're only parts, a chapter, verses, whatever. As a matter of fact, one of the earliest ones is from the Gospel of John, found in this little provincial village uh, along the Nile uh, River in Egypt. And it's dated to the early, possibly about 1, I think, 13 or 18 A.D. All right? So only... Uh, a few years, tw- anywhere from 20, if it's a little bit later than that, uh, possibly maybe like 135 or so. We're looking at like 20 to 50 years after the death of the Apostle Paul. I mean, uh, the death of the Apostle John, right? So, and already a part of that gospel had been copied and transmitted all the way from there over into Egypt, showing that it was in circulation. It was known. It was recognized as being scripture, which is implicated by the fact that it was copied and being passed around. Um... And not only is there the witness of that actual text, so for example, but also we have the early writers dating in, right in, going, moving into the first century or the second century AD, which we mentioned before, quoted the New Testament so much as authoritative and as authoritative in all matters of church life and doctrine, uh, you could practically reconstruct the New Testament just from their quotations. Uh, that's been well documented. So we have incredible witnesses from the earliest possible date. Uh, to uh, the text of, <clears throat> excuse me, to the text of Scripture. Um, now, by comparison, just to give you a little, little bit of a comparison here, uh, some of the most revered writings of pagan authors, such as Homer's Iliad, Caesar's Gaelic Wars, Titus Livy's History of Rome, the earliest manuscript copies date within 800 to 900 years from the original writing. 800 to 900 years. So when we're looking at this just from a historical point of view, there's, there's no... As a matter of fact, one author described it as embarrassing. I mean, the amount of evidence, the amount of witness that God has preserved for us uh, to His written Word. Um, I'm out of time. <clears throat> and I didn't finish. As fast as I went. So what we'll do <clears throat> is we'll just briefly finish this next week or I might just uh, hand out the information to you and print out some of the notes I have. And then uh, look at, because uh, I only have two more times here and then we'll be back at, uh, in Matthew in the morning. So uh, know this, that when we have the word of Scripture, the copy that we have before us um, is trustworthy it is reliable we can have every confidence that what we have is in fact uh, kept for us and preserved and the more you study this I just I this is my own experience common experience uh, the more detail that you study this the more confidence that you have the more overwhelmed you are with what God did in preserving his word and keeping it for us and for his people. I would say glance at one of those hands out is transmission so if you wonder what are some of the things that go into textual criticism uh, there's, there's a list of some of them uh, under the handout that says transmission. And lo and behold, I did yet another error. error. I'm sorry, I will fix this for next week. There's actually two pages to that, so that's only one part of it if you have it there. Um, but that shows you some of the kind of errors that were, when we're talking about textual criticism, some of the kind of errors that were made and that were addressed. All right, well, let me pray for us. And then... Um, we will move on. Father, we thank you so much for keeping your word. We, we, just, we just really need to grasp, our God, how amazing uh, 
And what a testimony to your faithfulness and sovereign hand that we have before us after all the history of your people, the persecution, the disobedience, uh, the ways the, the, per, the uh, judgment that you brought on your own people in terms of the Old Testament particularly, the persecution in the early years of the church, uh, of the church, uh, the many other things that would be working against the keeping of your word, and yet, uh, through it all, you've kept it, and you've preserved it, and here we have it today in our hands, in an age of iPhones and everything else, we have your ancient word kept and preserved just as it had come from the original authors when you gave it to us. And so we thank you for that. Help us to marvel at that. Help us to praise and worship you uh, for that. And help us to honor you by being diligent uh, to know you through your word, to study and to memorize and to pray over uh, and to understand that we might know you better and be conformed more and more by the Spirit of God into the image of Christ. We pray in his most precious name. Amen.